Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, August 14th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Living Sacrifice, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Enjoy. We are at what I simply would call a crossroad. We're in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And the crossroad that I'm talking about is really a transition. It's this place where we come and we stop for a brief second. In fact, Paul is even going to tell us to, I appeal to you, therefore. He's really saying, I beseech. I'm telling you to stop, listen, hold on to what I'm about to tell you. Because he's going to transition from where he's been. I call it a crossroad because it's the crossroad of life and godliness. It's this place where true Christians come out where you in fact find yourself dependent and trusting upon the person of Jesus Christ, his works, his righteousness, his mercies. But this path of life and godliness, as most things, creates a conflict between us. It creates a conflict between that which we believe as a Christian and that which we desire as a a human. This is oftentimes a conflict and is typically determined by what you choose to do next. But we have to ask ourselves, what compels us to do what we do? I get that we oftentimes experience or feel emotions. Anger may cause you to, in fact, propel forward uh, without giving much thought to your actions. Maybe worry or anxiety causes you to shut down. But emotions themselves reveal. They reveal where we're at and Paul is going to take us to this place where we're at. So look at it with, you, with me, if you will. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What compels a person to be a living sacrifice? Symbolically, what compels a soldier to throw themselves on a grenade to protect others? What compels us to get the door for a stranger? What compels us to say hello to a stranger on the street? What compels us to do what we do? In the last weeks, while I was on vacation in San Diego in particular, I started keeping a little list with me. It was on my phone, but I would keep a list of every single time I conformed to something. I just wanted to see and be conscious of what is it that I'm compelling, what's compelling me to do what I do? I often would find myself smirking as I went to a Padre game and I was standing in the elevator uh, to go up and I get on the elevator like everybody else and I hit my floor that I'm going to, I kindly step to the back and I turn and I face the door and I say nothing. Because that's what you do. I was giggling to myself that there's no sign that tells me to do this. There's nothing written in the law. There's nothing that would in fact want me to do that except for this is what the world does. I conformed at the beach. Everybody did. We got to the beach and we set up our towels and we all faced the ocean. No one's facing land. I even had a person call me after I'd just finished lunch 
and said, hey, I hear you're in town. Would you like to go and get lunch? Yes, I would. (laughs) I'm eating when I don't need to eat. But I think the thing that steps out the most to me is how we all get in line. We go to the grocery store and we get our groceries, we walk up to the front, and yeah, you're gonna sit there and search for a brief moment. It's like, ah, it looks like a couponer. I'm gonna go over here. Looks like he's using an out-of-state check. Whatever it is, right? You're starting to realize that I can find different things. Or TSA, when we got on the airplane, when we were heading on the airplane, I'm looking in the line because my wife is mad at me because I'm used to business travel. So I, she is somewhere way behind me and I'm just going on my path but I get up to TSA and I'm looking at the line. I'm like, oh, lady with five kids and a stroller. Okay, let's go to this line. It doesn't compel me to go and help the lady who's struggling with five kids all by herself. It's every man for himself. And I got to get through TSA. So what compels us to do this? What compels us to do what we do? It is either our devotion and our belief in God, or it is our fleshly desire. But Paul starts here. He says, and I want to note this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. In the King James, he would say, I beseech. He's saying, stop, listen, and pray with urgency for what you're going to do next. He wants us to stop and listen and pray, brothers, by what? the mercies of God. This is important. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, as we tear into your word tonight, I pray that your spirit would be present within us, that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to think deeply about these words that you so gifted us. Help us, Lord, to apply this to our everyday life, that we would live the gospel, not just know it. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace. Help us to grow in a better and better understanding of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So chapters one through 11 of Romans, the totality of chapters one through 11 is that Paul has told us, he has preached to us about the power of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God even unto salvation. He's looked at not only the the power of the gospel, he's talked to us about our justification that is by faith. He talked to us about our universal sinfulness, our depravity, and our inability to follow God, our inability to do even good. No, not even one. He's talked to us about the redemption that comes from Christ alone. He's talked to us about his sovereignty in those whom he will call into himself. And he's even gone as far to tell us about his promise and how it's not been compromised and he tells us clearly what is the future of Israel. The point is of chapters one through 11 is that these results are only attributed to not to human merit. None of these things have been because of us. All of these things have been because of the mercy of God. There's no human effort, there's only his mercy. And he now brings this whole discussion into the crossroad and he tells us that there's a motive that has to be a devotion to God. An absolute devotion. 
This devotion is so important for us to understand because up until this point, everything has been God's act, none of ours. It's all of him. But now he's gonna transition to a place where he's gonna tell you, you're responsible for this. You know, the one thing that God entrusts you and me with is our attitude. Everything else is in his control. When he starts to put this position, he said, so whatever gratitude, whatever gratitude that your soul feels for the pardon of your sins, for the purity and the sure prospect of eternal life, it is to understand that now we are called forward to consecrate yourself in dedication to God who is the author of all mercies. You see, to consecrate yourself is to answer God's call. This isn't about your salvation, this is about your sanctification. This is about your growth, your dependence, your trust in a holy God. It means making a conscious, willing decision to dedicate your soul, your mind, your heart, your body to God. This decision must be one of your intellect, of your emotion, and your volition of your will. You must surrender. And only you can make the decision to consecrate yourself to God. Your salvation is secure. The mercies of God is what compels you. It compels you to change your attitude, to think differently, to be radically different than the world. His point one to us is that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul uses temple language here to illustrate what is simply a paradox, a living sacrifice, maybe even an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp. Living sacrifice. It is describing a deliberate, living, killing, likened to that that we see in Luke chapter 9. Verses 23 and 24, where Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it mean then to be a living sacrifice? What does this act of worship itself entail? Because this living sacrifice is your worship. When we look at the verse, we can probably learn the following insights about this. Number one, when it comes to living sacrifice, there is an intentional decision to give oneself to God as an offering. I'm giving myself to God. I'm going to follow him, not my desire. The Greek word here for present, uh, to present our bodies, right, which is used in verse one to mean to appear or to stand before. I'm standing before God, right? And the meaning here is that, that I'm making an offering consciously and self-decidedly to present myself as the offering to follow him. Just as Bob talked about our vision last week, to equip the church to follow Jesus. This is where we put the rubber to the road. This is where we grow and we intentionally, with volition of will, we give ourselves as a sacrifice 
We're gonna get into that a little bit more. But the Greek word here, or the, the, the presenting oneself. The second component of living sacrifice is that there is a lifetime decision to give oneself to God as an offering. This isn't that I'm just gonna do it today, but tomorrow is gonna be totally different. To follow God is to make a lifelong decision. To be a living sacrifice is to offer yourself to God for the whole duration of your life. I'm here to live myself to the pleasure of you. You never cease from this moment forward to be an offering for the use of God. Use me, Lord, as you would use me. Have me go where you would want me to go. We have such a tendency to hold on to things in life, don't we? We all, to a certain extent, become Jonah this way. We've been told to go to Nineveh, but we're gonna try and go to Tarshish. We're gonna try and circle all the way back. Brothers and sisters, if God wants to use you in some way, you can take the long way, but you're going to Nineveh. Thirdly, a living sacrifice counts oneself as sacred for God and pleasing for his use. That's what we are for. We are for his use. Right? The, word holy, the words holy and acceptable that he uses here carries the meaning of sacred and pleasing. In being sacred, you set yourself aside for a particular purpose. And each moment, I have no idea what that specific purpose is going to be. As I stand in the line of life, this word picture of standing in lines, there is oftentimes great tests that come to us while we stand in this line of life. And you're going to have to discern what is the will of God at that moment. And how will you position yourself as the sacrifice? In short, right, to be a living sacrifice is to offer your life for God's pleasure on his terms, not yours. God is, of course, most pleased with you when you are most trusting of him. This isn't about trying to set out on a path of good works and say, Lord, be pleased with me, Lord, be pleased with me, Lord, be pleased with me. This is setting on a path that is gonna defy everything that makes logical sense to you and you're going to put yourself into the buzzsaw for the purposes of being a pleasure to him because you're going to trust him. When I stand in line, sometimes these people, they come in and they cut, right? We know those people. Maybe it's in traffic, right? It's not complicated, right? Every other car when we're merging lanes. But then you see that one person's gonna squeeze one more extra car in. I suppose when someone takes cuts, you can do one of probably about three things or so. You can confront the person. You can say, hey, buddy, line starts way back there. Or maybe you go a more passive way and you just sit there and slowly stew on the inside. This jerk, he took cuts. And you just sit there and commit murder in your heart. Or maybe, probably more like me, would be a more passive aggressive way and use sarcasm. Hey, excuse me. Hey, I would be okay with it. If you could get permission from every single person behind me, I'd be willing to let you stay here. Paul is not communicating to us or saying to us that the Christian, because you've become a Christian, 
you no longer have to stand in line in the world. Don't walk away with that point. You do have to stand in the line because you are in this world but not of this world. He is saying that you are to be, to be not conformed to this world. So what does that mean? This is a hard concept. Maybe in this word picture, it means you're supposed to get out of the line and go to the back. You say, what? Maybe, maybe I'm supposed to get out of the line and go to the back. See, how much of the world's idea of American justice starts to take place in our mind? How much of the world says that I've been cheated out of something important, the line here to get into the movie, and that guy took cuts? People have fistfights over such simple things. But it's not so that you would go to the back of the line to draw attention to yourself. It's that you would go to the back of the line to give glory to the one who, by the mercies of God, is allowing you to be there in the first place. Paul says, point here, be not conformed. Be not conformed. You see, when we conform to the world, we agree with it. We agree with it and we walk in its ways. Anything that's not done or not of God is of this world. The world itself is a human-made construct that operates under the rule of law. How many times do you hear our politicians say this to us? America is a rule of law country. America is a conformist nation. Conformity is just simply compliance with standards, rules, or laws that are of the world. The elevators, the lines that we stand in, maybe this subject of tolerance these days. That somehow I'm supposed to tolerate the the lunacy of this world. When I grew up as a kid, so many people would tell me, you know what, Jeff? If you just put your mind to it, you can be anything you want. The world has taken this idea and they've run with it to extremes. I thought that had to do with just vocation. Apparently, our world thinks it's anything and everything. Tomorrow, I'll be a woman. The next day, I'll be a man. The next day, I'll be a dog. The next day, I'll be whatever. And everyone sits around and says, thank you. And they conform to this ideology of a worldview that is not of Christ. It is not of God. How can we possibly join in that? Tolerance itself can be acceptable, but it doesn't mean that I agree with you. But I must respect you because you are created in the image of God. How do I lead with this truth? How do I not capitulate what I believe? How do I step forward and put full trust in a holy and a sovereign God and not conform to the world? This conformity, it takes place. It takes place through informational influence. It happens when people change their behavior in order to be seen as correct or right. We see this on social media, on Facebook, on all Instagram and everything else. Somebody's like, okay, yeah, well, that's good. Hey, good for you. Even though what they're doing is is 
overtly sinful in the eyes of a holy God. Or it comes through normative influence, things that are trying to be normalized. Normative influence stems from our desire to avoid consequence and conflict. Ah, it's okay. Everybody does that. To go along with political norms. Or we, we fall to normative influence through gain or rewards. We're accepting immoral constructs and we celebrate them. Conformity is a daily temptation. You're being lured and enticed by your own desire. James 1.14 tells us that. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Paul calls for us to reject conformity to this world, to reject the natural desires of what goes on around you and to put yourself into the complete and total trust of a sovereign, holy, and most importantly, a merciful God. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Where and when does conformity begin? They all tell you, he says, social conformity typically starts at the age of 12. Up until that point, children would play. They would do all kinds of things. They'd say things that you're not, you know, as a parent, your child says something to someone like, hey, easy, buddy, because they don't care what the world thinks. Conformity begins with at least three people. And yeah, the older we get, the more we feel a need for social approval, and it increases our conformity. We know these things. A person takes drugs or alcohol because they don't want to appear boring when they're with all their friends and their friends are doing it. Peer pressure. A person dresses in the same style as a colleague or a classmate in order to fit in. People choose these political parties like one is choosing a local sports team these days. Children label their sexual identity so as not to be outcasted or canceled. Maybe an example of the ways the world conforms us without us even realizing it is through technology, artificial intelligence, these bots that are out there. People are sitting there finding themselves on their social media saying, that's a great question, and they're responding to it, and then it responds back to them. It's not even a person. It's there to brainwash you. It's there to get you to think a particular way or buy a particular product. If you get a chance, go watch the documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And look at how we're being manipulated through social media and we're conforming right to it. But instead of conformity, Paul tells us, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our point here is that we are to be transformed, to be metamorphized. You see, that's the word that he's using for transform. To, um, Paul likens it from the word that we use for metamorphosis, when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Think about that transformation that Paul's talking about here. He's literally saying that you need to become radically different than what you were to the renewing of your mind to be transformed into something that is nowhere, anywhere looking like the world. How much of our stuff, how much of our life looks just like the world? Examine it. 
I'm not here to judge it. I'm not here to tell you you should do this or you should do that. But Paul is calling us to examine these things. How much of my life looks like this world? The change in the end, it's so much different. This is how transformational a new creation should be when it comes to the way we think. The renewing of our mind. You remember our thoughts determine oftentimes our actions. What we think on is what I will probably do next. If your mind changes, you will change directions. This is our crossroad of belief and desire. And what you do next defines which bucket you drew from. Proverbs in the New King James, Proverbs 23, 7 tells us that as a man thinks, so he is. Luke 6, 45 tells us that the evil brings forth evil and the good brings forth good. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we believe in our hearts and our minds is what we are. It determines what we choose and what we do. What we believe shapes all decisions, all choices. It's true as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Romans 1.28, if you go all the way back to there, right? Paul warned us of a debased mind that leads to debased actions. The depravity of the mind just compounds. It gets worse and worse and then it justifies and approves. Our constant prayer and goal should be to have a renewed mind, a renewed heart that will keep us walking in the Lord's path of holiness all the days of our life. And that's in all situations, all circumstances. Because all circumstances are the test that Paul's alluding to here a test for success. Do you believe that God is testing you for success? Look at it in James 1, 2 2 through 4. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you truly believe this? Ask yourself, what is it that I truly desire? Because Paul, just after that, tells, or James, I keep saying that backwards, James tells us in 114 and 15 what happens when our desire steps in. He says in 114, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death to test or to tempt in this context here this Greek word uh, parasio right is the difference between a test and a temptation it's found in the tester's motivation God tests so you will succeed evil tempts so that you will fail so that you will be lured off the path of Christ But when Paul says in Romans 12, 2b, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
he uses a slightly different word. This word is a testing or trying or examination or better yet, a proving. Prove you're a follower of Christ. Prove it. Do something that's not of this world. Sacrifice yourself. It's likened to Hebrews 3.9 where you hear the author say, where your fathers put me to the test. They wanted him to prove and they saw my works for 40 years. He was proving his faith. He was proving his loyalty to following God. We see Jesus' examples of passing the test of nonconformity. When Jesus was uh, in Matthew 12, right, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they informed him that his mother and his brothers were outside wanting to speak to him. Listen to what Jesus' words were, right? They're harsh to some. Jesus says, when they say, hey, your mom and your brothers are out front, uh, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mothers, here are my brothers. That's Matthew 12, 48 and 49. But his larger point comes in verse 50 when he says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, is my mother. Listen to what he's saying. There is where we step out of line and we deny ourselves for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. The normative influence here is that we say blood is thicker than water. This world tells us that the bonds of blood and the relationship between family members reign supreme over everything. But God transcends these family ties and blood bonds of mere DNA. It does not mean that my family isn't important or that I should abandon them or leave them alone. It simply means that there will be times in my life that I must choose to be used for God, by God, for his glory. Those moments come as a brother or a sister comes to you weeping and saying, help me. Well, I'm gonna miss family dinner because you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my mother, and I am here to serve a holy God at the sacrifice of myself, at the sacrifice of my family, to the glory of him. Another example of Jesus, his choice to die on the cross, to substitute himself for our sins. His disciples and others did not appear to understand his choice at first. For they were viewing his sacrifice through the lens of the world. They were utilizing informative influence. Even as Jesus carried his cross to the side of the crucifixion, he was taunted by the chief priests, the teachers, the elders, and the others who watched. They said, save yourself if you really are the Christ. Let God rescue you if you are truly his son. But Jesus set his eyes. He set his eyes on heaven and he chose for eternal good, not a temporary feel-good measure. He sacrificed himself. John 12, he predicted his death, telling his followers in John 12, 23, he says, my time has come. In 
24 and 25, he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We are to reject this worldly life. Jesus was saying, and instead, he, cling, he was clinging to what was to come. We are to be kingdom-focused, kingdom-wanting. His words are clear. Let the will of God in heaven be done, not the will of humanity or this world. Jesus said, Father, save me from this hour. No, it was this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. A living sacrifice for God to be used however he chooses. And our final point here is that we must discern the will of God. Jesus said, you must therefore you therefore must be perfect in Matthew 5:48 as your heavenly father is perfect. But in Romans 12:2, he says be transformed so that you can do what is perfect. Is this not why Paul puts all of Romans under the banner of mercy? He says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. All of Romans 12 as we go forward, is based on the first 11 chapters of Romans. And those chapters are about God's mercy in Christ. This is what saves us in spite of our imperfection. And Romans 6 and 7 makes it plain that this imperfection continues into our Christian lives. The command of verse 2 that we do what is good, acceptable, and perfect, it throws us back again onto the mercies of God. And this mercy sends us back again to pursue perfect obedience. No one can stand at the cross receiving mercy, can be casual about the will of God. The cross itself compels us with great gratitude, with incredible hope and joy to even cut off our hand if it causes us to stumble. If we must, to follow Christ, it that is. So let us live at the cross for merciful blessing and let us carry the cross in merciful obedience. As I call the worship and the prayer team up, I want you to give yourself to this, to let your mind be transformed, to be a living sacrifice, to be an imitator and follower of Christ, to be good, to be acceptable, to be perfect, for the will of God is revealed in you You are the example of Christ in him crucified to the glory of Christ himself. How do we do this? If you would, right, turn to Titus 2. It's to your right in the Bible, right? You're gonna go from Romans, you're gonna go through the Thessalonians, you're gonna go through Timothy 1 and 2, and you're gonna get to Titus. If you've gone beyond that, uh, you've, you've gone too far, so... Uh, if you see Hebrews, go back a book. So, but look at what, what he says to us in Titus, in two, verses 11 through 14. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice here that the grace is more than God's undeserved favor. It is God's invincible power. We are purchased by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, which trains us to say no to ungodly thoughts and affections and ungodliness. And a self-saving compulsion of worldly passion, it saves us from this. It causes us to look upward for our blessed hope in the return of Christ, and it compels us outwardly for the zealousness of good works instead of inwardly for selfish desire. It is by the mercies of God and his grace that we have seen the power of the gospel. We have seen justification by faith. We have seen our universal sinfulness. We have seen our redemption in Christ. We have seen God's sovereignty and the future of Israel. Let these mercies compel you to stand in the line of life, but live for his glory as a living sacrifice. And then, and then after reflecting on that, what can I do to be transformed daily? daily to be renewed in my mind. Maybe you need to examine your screen time versus your God time. Maybe we need to examine our pleasure seeking versus our devotion to knowing God. Maybe we need to look at our life and where do we believe and live and live like everyone else. To look at how we exercise our emotions with friends, family, and in the traffic lanes of life. Maybe we need to remove ourselves from certain lines in life altogether to get out of the social media line, to get out of the 24-7 news cycle and anything else that would lure you away from the glory of Jesus Christ. To be compelled by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice for that is holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because this is your spiritual act of worship. To worship him. Your worship is a living sacrifice of yourself to the glory of him. Your living sacrifice is a synonym and an observation of proof of your faith. Right now we're gonna sing a song. It's a, it's a mashup of the song uh, Angus Day and King of Kings. Angus Day is just the Latin phrase that means Lamb of God. It is the mercies of this God and the King of Kings that compels us to live our life as a sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship this wonderful God. All praise to him. Our whole life that is before us is a life for us to lay down to be used by God, for God, for his glory and his glory alone. When you stand at that crossroad of life, in the line of life, sometimes you need to get out of that line and go to the back. 
without calling fanfare, without calling attention to yourself, because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the glory of him, and that if we would just humble ourselves before him and not participate in this world, but to give all glory to him, to praise him for everything. They'll be our prayer warriors, we'll be down here this evening. If you're standing at one of those crossroads and just need someone to come alongside you and pray with you, or if you need help and counseling, come see me. If you need someone to help disciple and mentor you through this, come see Pastor Mark. Come see us. Come help, let us help you, equip you to follow Jesus. Amen? Amen? To God be the glory. Love on each other. See you next week.